Welcome to Surviving Society Presents The Global Power of the British Monarchy. In these episodes, we'll be looking to challenge existing conversations about the British monarchy. Often in popular discourse, the monarchy is taken for granted as part of British culture. With expert guests, the podcast tells a story of the other side of monarchy, from its links to empire and colonialism, to issues of wealth accumulation and nationalism. The series sets out to disrupt common sense understandings and undertake a critical analysis of the firm and its various intersections with inequality. This series has been executively produced by Laura Clancy. In this episode, we will be thinking about monarchy and race, particularly in terms of whiteness and white privilege. We'll be looking at this through a post-colonial lens and thinking about what regimes of whiteness might tell us about the institution and its global functions. So I'm joined by, for this episode, Professor and Endowed Chair in Communications, Raka Shom. Would you like to introduce yourself, Raka? Yes, thank you, Laura, for inviting me. It's really a wonderful opportunity to speak about a topic that I've written a lot on. So as Laura mentioned, I'm Raka Shom. I'm a professor in communication studies at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. I have uh, written a lot on post-colonial approaches to media and my specific interests have been on gender and nationalism, especially as they intersect with issues of race. I, I think one of the reasons why I'm being invited to this uh, forum is because I wrote this book in 2014 that came out in 2014 called Diana and Beyond, White Femininity, National Identity and Contemporary Media Culture. And this book through Diana, it's not really a book about Diana, but rather through Diana's iconicity and her mediation, the book tries to explore uh, the functioning of white femininity in post-colonial, post-90s Britain, and how that functioning reflects uh, larger national articulations and rearticulations. So I study Diana as a sign of post-colonial Britain. And in particular, this book makes an argument about how white femininity and nationalism or nationhood intersect in terms of post-colonial Britain of post-1990s, especially discuss how Diana can be understood or Diana as white femininity can be understood as a site of articulation and disarticulation of prior imperial uh, logics and new post-colonial logics. The other thing that I want to say about the book is that I am not interested and have not been interested in Diana the person, but Diana the image, uh, Diana the cultural text. So this book would be of interest to people who are uh, especially intrigued by how white femininity as a cultural text mediates national identity in Western nations. Rereading this book, it feels so timely in a weird way, even though it's kind of writing about that moment in the 90s. Let's stick kind of with the point where that book was written for a moment. And, you know, that particular context, you know, in the 1990s, we've got, you know, the UK had a Labour government. We kind of had this idea of, of progress, of cosmopolitanism, of all of those right. things. That feels very kind of sent, a kind of essential thread in the book, I suppose. Absolutely. So 1990s was really interesting um, in Britain because with uh, Tony Blair coming in, the entire ethos was uh, that was being forged, at least attempted to be forged, was of a new Britain, you know, kind of cool Britannia was a signature uh, often used. And there were attempts to kind of produce an image of Britain that was somehow post-imperial that you know, we have broken away from the empire. And this is a new, modern, globalized, multicultural Britain. And Diana, of course, embodied all of that. You know, she embodied mm -hmm. all of that. But the argument in the book is that that narrativization of this post-colonial whiteness of Britain uh, really, uh, in a very concealed way, reproduces many of the earlier logics of the empire. So for instance, in this book, I talk about how the terms under which 
multiculturalism was being absorbed into England. It was multiculturalism that was being absorbed into a white cosmopolitan ethos. It was not an image of a multiculturalism that was disruptive because we also cannot forget that in the 1990s, one of the most horrific racial cases happened in England, that is the Stephen Lawrence case, and how that was managed by the establishment. So here was a case that was really, that could have ruptured the national narrative of cosmopolitanism, and yet there were a lot of uh, failures. Uh, so Diana then becomes this image of this white, progressive, post-colonial, post-racial Britain that is ultimately, of course, not progressive because it is functioning to erase and manage the imperial logics still at play in England. So do you feel that that's because of her particular kind of position, what the monarchy represents more broadly? Because, I mean, what we're talking about with the monarchy, we're talking about whiteness, right? We're kind of talking about nationalism. We're talking about a very specific form of kind of conservative politics, I suppose, with a small c. Particularly that period, kind of when she was, when she was married into the monarchy and then that period after her divorce, whether there was a slight shift in that narrative in terms of yes. her kind of being distanced, I guess, from the institution. Yeah. That's a great question. And that's one of the things I attempt to do in the book, um, Laura, is that through an analysis of Diana's changing image and especially changes in her body, the representations of her body, how a new narrative of the national body was being written. So when you saw earlier images of Diana when she was, be, when she was engaged to Charles or even the, in the early years of her marriage, she was in these fluffy gowns and, you know, all uh, billowed up. Uh, but as the narrative began to change that she was at a war with the royal family and so being positioned as anti-imperial, right, anti-establishment, which is the post-colonial narrative of whiteness in 1990s, her body begins to look very modern, very trimmed down, no frills. I mean, I literally uh, sat down with 50, 60 images from the her early 1990s image to her post-1997 when she died. And you begin to literally see when you juxtapose the, those images, Diana's body beginning to rise up. Earlier, she used to be a little hunched, right? Then towards the end, she was all straight and gym-toned, right? Straight and gym-toned and slim and tight. And it's almost as if it's a new kind of post-colonial agency of whiteness that gets positioned uh, through the writing of Dinah as anti-establishment, as anti-monarchy. But of course it was not. Dinah herself was very clear that she was never anti-monarchy because in one of her interviews, she said, why will I want to destroy something that is the future of my son? But she wanted to modernize monarchy. So then if we can see England, Britain in the 1990s through that lens, it was never a break from imperial logics, but it was an attempt to modernize the nation. And let us also not forget that with the 1990s, you have Blair's neoliberalism, you know, Blair, Britain, the whole neoliberal project, and therefore globalizing uh, England's market, right? You know, globalizing the economy. And we know that globalizing the economy is very tied to global exploitation. You had images of Diana from the early 90s to the mid 90s traveling to different parts of the world. You know, those famous images of her picking up children. So on the face of it, it was a very globally humanitarian image of England. But when you look at those images, it still reproduces that age old narrative of the white woman or the white nation in the colonies, saving people. My favourite part of the book is when you analyse those images. It's really interesting to think about, again, you know, reading it now. I mean, Angelina Jolie was like the first person that popped into my head. But kind of all of those kind of celebrity, you know, and then we think about those kind of big charity um, initiatives like Comet Relief and stuff like that, where we see that kind of same narrative around, you know, uh, white saviour kind of narratives. But I guess also um, with someone like Kate Middleton, perhaps, and kind of other members of the royal family and how we might, we might see that being enacted in not just Commonwealth countries, but Commonwealth countries in particular. I want the audience to again just remember that every time I am referring to these individuals, I'm not thinking of them as individuals, I'm thinking of them as cultural texts. 
because none of us have access to their real lives. Uh, so the narrativization of Kate Middleton is interesting. Uh, one of the most interesting things to me about how uh, England or Britain and the monarchy at a larger level gets narrated after Diana's death is that there is a Diana almost constitutes a temporal marker. You know, it's like before Diana, after Diana, because Diana is seen as having wrought so much change not just in the monarchy, but even amongst the people and their relationship to the royal family. Uh, so she constitutes an important temporal marker. Uh, and what I find interesting about the mediation of Kate Middleton is that um, some of the typical logics through which white women uh, get idealized, like motherhood, is very prominent in the way in which Kate Middleton gets uh, discussed. Narrativization of her motherhood in media tend to cast her as different from the queen's style of motherhood, right? So her style of motherhood is seen as hands-on parenting, very modern. You have the similar images of her with William taking the kids to school as you saw with Diana. Kate is in some ways seen as a continuation of Diana, but more contained, more contained. In other words, if Diana was seen as rebellious and anti-establishment, Kate is not. She's certainly not anti-establishment in, in her narrativization. She's modern, but with a if or a but. Uh, and I think that needs to be situated in the politics of our, our current times. These are very, very different times. You know, uh, These are times where white supremacy is rising all over the West. There is heightened nationalism. Uh, with the image of Diana, I always found that there was an interesting tension there. That on the one hand, Diana was hyper-nationalized. You know, she was the new Britain. But at that same time, that hyper-nationalization was enabled by the globalization of her image. Uh, but with Kate, I think that cosmopolitan global um, tenor is far less. It's not that we don't see her in other parts of the world, but she's far more situated as a white nationalist subject, very loyal, loyal to the crown, to the monarchy. And that might be uh, a reflection of the, the currents of the times in Britain. The image of Kate, to me, gels more with a Brexit narrative. I wrote a chapter about Kate Middleton for my book, <laughs> pre Brexit, pre kind of what, pre Meghan Markle, pre all the stuff that's happened since. Um, and I, I kind of feel like the narrative around Kate has changed perhaps a little bit in recent years. But I think at that particular moment of the wedding, so we're talking about 2011, new Conservative government, slight change in narrative, but haven't quite got to the point we're at now. What I really read in Kate Middleton was that, you know, the monarchy had this really quite difficult few years um, with Diana and kind of all of the fallout of that and kind of various other personal crises of the younger royals. And someone like Kate was the perfect antidote to come in as a representation of exactly what you said, the kind of white femininity, nationhood, very kind of pro-monarchy, very conservative with a small C, kind of that very uh, traditional version of femininity that can reproduce children, that can carry on the monarchy, that can continue that same narrative. So it was almost like the ultimate safe option with the added bonus of her being constructed as middle class, and I'm using quote marks here, kind of how that was attached to her family as a way of almost making the monarchy peer meritocratic. So I kind of felt like they were drawing on, you know, that spectre of Diana in terms of exactly what you said, being uh, quite hands-on, you know, mothering, all of those kinds of narratives, but moving that on as well, very, very safe, very traditional version of femininity that Kate represents. Now that you say this, Laura, it's also interesting to uh, recognize how Kate is the stable white female body, right? Whereas with Dinah, it was more full of contradictions, stability, instability, right? But Kate is the stable white female national body. And I think that's interesting to um, uh, mark. Uh, and I think that what all these discussions really point to, uh, and again, that's an argument that I make in my theoretical argument that I make in my book. It is often through reading shifts 
in representations of white femininity. And of course, this is only in a Western, North, North Atlantic Western context, that we can often read shifts in the nation's politics, its cultural politics. The white female body and narratives of white femininity are integral to reproducing national narratives because as feminist scholarship for the longest time has pointed out, women of dominant culture are made to stand in for the nation. When we, we talk about Kate Middleton, it's really interesting because on the one hand, you know, we talk about the reproduction of monarchy through kind of representation and media, and that's how I would frame it. But when you think of women within the within the monarchy, and Kate, and Kate in particular in this case, we're talking about literal reproduction <laughs> and how their bodies and how their bodies are kind of being tasked to reproduce the institution and what that means in terms of mothering and labour and all of those things, but also in terms of, of whiteness and reproduction in that way as well. I mean, their role is to reproduce whiteness, mm. both, as you said, at a literal biological level, but also at a far more um, cultural level, you know, at a narrative level. But in this case, I guess, reproduce certain uh, ideologies of white domesticity, of the white family, with a more modern slant. And I think we really see that with Kate, like I said, that middle-classness, kind of that ordinariness, taking the kids to school. And that's very much drawing on Diana, but of course Diana was an aristocrat <laughs> and you could, totally, never get, you could never get around that. Whereas right, Kate, right. even though her family are multimillionaires, people tend to not listen to that and just think about her as kind of coming from, you know, ordinary background. Kate's inclusion in the royal family allowed a narrativization which was in a different way also happened to Dinah, but in a very different way because Dinah did come from an aristocratic space. But Kate's inclusion in the royal family did allow for this narrative of, this is a family of the masses. You know, the lines between the commoner and the royal uh, blurs, which is again, another very post-colonial narrativization of whiteness. Somehow the walls of aristocracy are breaking. This is New Britain. We know it's not, right? So I think that an interesting um, theoretical uh, point that emerges from all this is how does the white female body, through, uh, through the garb of modernity, conceal the presence of the old in the new? It happened yeah. with Dinah. It happens with, it's happening with Kate. I think it's time to maybe bring Meghan Markle into this discussion. <laughs> it was inevitable that we would discuss Meghan Markle. But I wonder then, you just made me think now in terms of a lot of the part of the narratives of the many, many, many narratives around Meghan Markle, and we can talk about the different aspects of that. But part of it was this, how the press made up or talked a lot about a supposed riff in quote marks with Kate Middleton so how Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle didn't get on or they were constantly kind of comparing them constantly comparing their femininity constantly comparing you know who was the better princess who was more proper who was more you know appropriate at a particular event in England more than half the television audience watched and the press there is adding more detail to the story of that confrontation between Duchess Kate and Meghan just before she married the prince did Meghan Markle slam the door in sister-in-law Kate's face? In her interview, Meghan says that Kate made her cry in a dispute over flower girl dresses. She owned it and she apologized and she brought me flowers. But a report in the respected Times of London claims there was much more to the story Meghan didn't talk about. Meghan slammed the door in Kate's face when she went to deliver the flowers, according to the article. Kate was told in no uncertain terms it was not enough. And it's interesting then to think about, you know, Kate as, you know, if you're talking about masking the old, and of course we know that after we know, you know what's happened to Meghan Markle, we know <laughs> that the monarchy is not, you know, post-colonial in all those different ways. So how those kind of narratives, and we don't, obviously we don't know if they're true or not, around kind of Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle somehow, you know, reproduce those kind of narratives, I guess, again, around, around whiteness. The narrativization of her really calls attention to uh, you know what you were just saying, the presence of the old in the new, and the spitting of Megan and Kate against each other in the media, is such a classist colonial logic. The pitting of white femininity, and even though Kate is not really middle class, she's upper you know upper middle class, right? Uh, the pitting of that against black 
I mean, Megan has done well, but she didn't come from a very privileged background. You know, the pitting of that against black classed femininity, it's, it, it was such a, and it continues to be such a typical racist colonial trope. And one of the things that, that has been very interesting to me, I think you asked me um, in one of the questions is that, can you describe your responses at the, at the time of the wedding? And I don't know if you remember that, but when the, uh, the black um, choir, you know, uh, was singing, uh, the discomfort in whiteness, <laughs> you know, it's like the, yeah. it ruptured whiteness, but also made visible its inability to deal with anything that ruptures it, right? So uh, Meghan Markle could, you know, could have been like, whitewashed a little bit as Harry's partner, okay, you know, we can pull her into the royal family. But all these singers with, uh, you know, with their expressive gestures and a particular kind of um, um, black music. Uh, I remember William's face dying not to laugh. And I remember the dumbfounded expression of, was it Beatrice or her sister? Mm, one and of them, yeah. One of them. And you really saw whiteness being unsettled there, but whiteness also very quickly reclaiming itself, right? So that is something I remember very well, but going back to Meghan Markle, uh, the representations of Meghan Markle and continues to be so, uh, really, you know, reproduces these narratives um, about the difficult black woman, right? About how she handled the staff, how she's difficult to work with, uh, how she dominates Prince Harry, right? So it's like the, the strong, aggressive black woman narrative. And yet nothing in her appearance, her demeanor lends itself to that. So, you know, as sociologists, we really don't know, or we are really not interested in what actually happened. We are interested in what gets narrated. To go back to Meghan Markle's uh, narrativization, I think that that's the part most interesting for us to uh, pay attention to. How does that narrative keep unfolding? And it still does. You know, she's been out of the monarchy for, is it two years now, nearly three? So the, the orders were recording this in October, 2022. So the, the Queen's death and the funeral was last month. And we still saw her being, Meghan being represented in, there were conspiracy theories online about whether she was involved in the Queen's death, but then there was, she dressed inappropriately at the wedding and she didn't, you know, show appropriate respect at this place. So even though she's kind of not within the institution anymore and all of the kind of, you know, everything that institution brings, she's, it's, she's still being positioned as the outsider in those very kind of particular, like you said, the, the difficult black woman that is, that, that epitomizes kind of everything that constantly gets reproduced about her. I wonder if a parallel to that, and this may not be something we want to talk about right now, that may not be on your agenda, but something to think about um, in the future, uh, whether, and I haven't thought about this enough, but this is coming to me as we speak, whether Harry's image is functioning to represent a post-colonial, a post-imperial, and all within scare quotes, white masculinity. Because at the end of the day, Harry is never going to escape his stru structural position. He, you know, he can hee-haw about it, but he will never escape his structural position. And yet, I think both his self-presentation is of like, you know, this, this white imperial man who's suddenly having to uh, reckon with England's imperial past. And does that offer new subject positions of post-colonial white masculinity that may not be disruptive, but certainly does uh, kind of bend the narrative but one, it's too early, it's too premature, but one has to see how that narrative plays out. And more important for us as sociologists, how these narratives themselves get articulated to the larger politics of the times. I find Harry fascinating <laughs> as a sociologist, um, because I mean, we're talking about someone who, you know, for many years was positioned as, as the black sheep of the family. There were those pictures of him in Vegas, for example, you know, naked and partying. Then of course, he's in the army. 
So very much that kind of, you know, particularly in Afghanistan and Iraq and kind of the politics of that war or not a war and all of those kinds of questions around nationhood and power and money and profit and all of those things that go alongside that. And of course, he was, you know, reporters using racist slurs when he was in the army and, you know, very much this kind of almost like toxic masculinity that he seemed to embody at that time to this, to, to where we are now, where his position is like the woke prince right and again I'm using quote marks here on woke and as being you know he talks about feminism and there was a report I can't remember what what newspaper was in but essentially kind of saying that Megan had emasculated Harry um, he was yes. carrying the baby around in a papoose or something it's like oh yes. she's you know yes. she's she's even influencing him now and emasculating him so I think there's, there's something really interesting about him as a figure and kind of what he represented and of course there's all this mental health stuff which I also find fascinating I suppose Megan's well within that as well but his positioning of him on his own as well I think is quite fascinating it is very fascinating. And now that you say that, you know, whether Megan has emasculated him, um, that's a thread in the narrative. It is really interesting that the moment one moves away from the, the traditional white masculine subject position, we immediately jump up to feminize the person, right? To feminize that position. And of course, with this case, with Harry and Megan's, Megan's narrative, it gets further complicated uh, because there is this other intersection of the black woman devouring whiteness, right? Eating up whiteness. But on the other hand, Laura, uh, uh, with uh, Harry and Megan, but especially with Harry, you know, I've been thinking for a long time how it is Harry and the kind of whiteness that he's now representing uh, that really continues Dinah's narrative. I always think Harry is more Dinah's boy than William right totally. now. Yeah. Right? Rupturing, disrupting, but at the same time, still a part of monarchy. You know, because Harry complains about how he didn't get the security money and how his kids might be, you know, not being given this lineage. So there is this desire for the monarchy. At the same time, uh, a contradiction there, which is very Dinah-esque. Absolutely. When you were talking before, actually, you said, you know, Diana purposefully said she didn't want to get rid of the institution because it's her son's future. And it reminded me of, of the Oprah Winfrey interview. I thought it was absolutely unbelievable that they did that and kind of came out and said those things. But they very specifically said a number of times that they weren't against monarchy, they weren't against the institution. And I thought that was really interesting that they were kind of still positioning themselves as, as kind of within that and supportive of that, and supportive of, of Commonwealth. Right, and kind of Monica's global influence. He made a point of saying that as well. So it's that kind of inside-outside okay. status I find quite interesting, yeah. This sheds light on how whiteness is never monolithic. It is full of contradictions. And because of the contradictions, it can potentially be moved towards certain directions or hijacked into, for us, non-progressive directions. If it were a monolithic, it could not be articulated to shifting national directions. Absolutely. When you were speaking about Adani before, I was also thinking about this in relation to the nation versus the global. I think it's quite interesting in, in Diana and in Meghan, actually. Yes, um, absolutely. I was thinking of Diana as like the people's princess and how that was very kind of of that moment as well, right? That kind of, you know, Tony Blair, I think, said that. <laughs> um, and kind of of that of that particular moment in the 90s, but also then was positioned as this global icon and almost a global celebrity and how those things merge. And I think there's, there's something around Meghan in terms of what she represents within Britain and then how that is represented in other ways globally as well, and how those two things don't necessarily marry up. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I don't hear you saying that the globalization of Diana is the same as the globalization of Meghan Markle. No, no, it's no. not. No. What I have seen of the way in which Meghan Markle's global travels get covered is that she's often seen as connecting to people of color, and Dinah did as well, but for Megan, because as a black woman, it's more narrativized as solidarity, right? But with Dinah, it's like a white woman reaching out in that imperial humanitarian fashion. But at the same time, again, admittedly, I have not done the work uh, that I could to study Megan in depth because I'm writing a very different book right now. <laughs> but at the time that uh, Harry and Megan were still with the royal family and they were on tour in Africa, 
uh, I think they went to Australia as well. At that time, I think it did also lend itself to this uh, post-colonial white monarchy narrative. I mean, Megan served that till the ultimate break. And after she broke, she has been more vocal. So I don't see that as necessarily, it could be, but necessarily as a rupture, but as feeding into a multicultural image of the monarchy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what I found quite interesting, when Meghan was within the monarchy, and on those tours you mentioned, actually, the way in which kind of her identity as a Black woman and as someone who would say they're a feminist was kind of co-opted by the institution. That's kind of the language I would use. So how they... For my reading of it is they knew the power of Meghan, right? They knew the power of Meghan as representation. Obviously it blew up in their faces, but they, they knew the power of that in that moment in terms of how she could help them connect with audiences that they have never been able to connect to. So young people, people of colour, people around the globe, and how they could kind of use her in strategic ways, which, by the way, they do with all royal family members all royal family members are used in very strategic ways but how they could use that to kind of connect with those audiences and within the commonwealth as well and kind of perhaps you know we've seen recently with Barbados for example becoming a Uh republic and how those questions are arising in countries around the world about about the position of monarchy and how perhaps Meghan was almost you know being used as a way to mitigate some of those conversations I guess manage them yes Mm. do you remember uh, after the Oprah Winfrey interview and all hell broke loose and there was this moment where William and Kate were walking to an event and one of the members of the press asked William. Have you spoken to your brother since the interview? <laughs> no, I haven't spoken to him yet, but I will do. And, and can you just let me know, is the, the royal family a racist family, sir? No, we're very much not a racist family. This comment uh, tells us something about how uh, most white people don't understand racism, okay? That when William says we are not a racist family, it almost suggests that we have the agency or not to be racist, right? (laughs) So racism becomes a matter of intentionality instead of structural and historical positioning. So it individualizes racism, just as co-opting Meghan Markle allowed them to kind of individualize narratives of multiculturalism. We have a multicultural body, right? And erase the tensions there. Yeah. And how that kind of comment and kind of the speculation around, you know, a lot of the press were asking, well, which member of the royal family was asking about Archie skin color? But how that then it positions it on one particular individual rather than thinking about the structural racism within the institution, which actually they were addressing. You know, Megan talked about the institution. She called them the firm. You know, she was talking about that very specifically. And actually, Diana, obviously in very different ways, she wasn't talking about racism, but she also named the institution. As the firm. Yeah, and named the firm, yeah. um, To talk about the damage of the institution, actually, particularly to women's bodies. But also for Megan as well in terms of in terms of her racial identity. The the ways in which uh, female bodies get disciplined in any institution, but of course the royal family is an institution, and and we don't see the disciplining because we can't like loiter the halls of Buckingham, but we see the disciplining in the narratives that emerge, right? How those narratives reflect that disciplining. And then you had someone like Pierre, uh, Pierre Morgan, right, who clearly hates Meghan Markle. Oh, yeah. yeah. And right, he was raising questions. Um, so you had this carnival of white men, whether in the media or others, and the, the black female body under surveillance. Now, of course, Dinah was very much, her body was very much under surveillance, but in different ways. Mm. Because Dinah was being bad and naughty. Whereas Megan was not being bad or naughty. She is inherently difficult. She mm-hmm. comes with badness. Not that she becomes naughty like Diana later. As a black woman, she was never given kind of the affordance of being allowed to do those things. She was exactly. never allowed to kind of call anything out. She was never allowed to, you know, say this is a problem because yes. that would inherently mean she was against... Yes. Not just against the institution, but against Britishness. That's how it's positioned. Yes, and that's how yes. people like Piers Morgan position it. Yes, it's against yes. the very kind of basis upon which this country is built. Just yes. by virtue of existing, essentially. That's what it is. By virtue like. of existing. Mm. And I think like what played out, we are probably out of time, but what played out and continues to play out uh, is uh, 
you know, wasn't it Dubai who asked this question, what does it feel like to be a problem? So when you get a black or a non-white body in a white institution, and in this case, an institution, so refied in its whiteness, you continue to be a problem. Mm-hmm. In my book, I kind of position it as, you know, they wanted this person, right? Who was going to be progressive, who was going to move the monarchy to the next level, who was going to connect with new people. But actually, rather than kind of masking all of those histories of colonialism, <laughs> racism, of all of that, actually, Megan's very presence just brought those things to the forefront. Absolutely. Because she made it very, she made it too obvious for them that, you know, she doesn't, and I'm using quote marks here again, that she doesn't fit, that she doesn't, you know, fit those particular narratives. Um, because she was there front and centre and she made it perfectly obvious just by, again, by virtue of existing. <laughs> so her kind of, her image was too much for them to contain because it, it just drew attention, like you just said in the church, right? And kind of the choir and all of those things, it drew attention to those tensions. Kind of thinking about black death, black female death. So uh, that, uh, you know, scholars of race uh, have talked about uh, black death in white spaces, your very existence in white spaces results in death, right? Uh, of course, not physical death all the time, but emotional death, spiritual death. Now with Megan or a black body, a black female body in that white space, even if you conform and assimilate, and I'm sure Megan tried to conform, she had to, you know, I mean, she's not stupid, she had to conform or try to conform. Even when you conform and assimilate, you die, like as she said in that interview of, in Africa to like Harry's friend that she was dying inside. Even if you assimilate, you conform. And when you don't assimilate, you still die because everybody's on you, they kill you. So that there is no positive space possible for a black body in such a white and it's still an imperial space. I mean, in the logics are still imperial, even though materially it's not imperial. Or well, materially it's still imperial because its wealth is still based on theft and loot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think to me, what Megan represents is, you know, this idea that we can modernize the monarchy is impossible. Because there's kind of so much that's caught up within the institution, so much history, so much damage, so many inequalities that it's you can't modernize something like that because and Megan showed that right because that was an attempt to modernize in a very particular way and it was just it became impossible modernize and uh, multiculturalize mm. monarchy as as a space of Britain as a emblem of Britain so what do you think I'm curious because I'm not located in Britain right now what do you think the current politics are reflecting about the narrativization of the monarchy. I was just reflecting when you were speaking. I mean, we've just had another new prime minister in. (laughs) So this is Rishi Sunak, yeah, he's our first kind of British Asian prime minister. I mean, I think it's really, but then of course, we've also just lost the queen. So much of what was kind of caught up in the monarchy and kind of ideas of progress in the monarchy was that it was a woman. There's a woman heading that institution and what that means symbolically and, you know, the amount of times I've had, well, of course, the monarchy is feminist, you know, the, the, there's a queen at the head of it and all of those ridiculous <laughs> sentences. So to have a king, right, a white man kind of the head of that institution, at the same time as we have a very, very far right conservative government, democracy is crumbling around us, <laughs> you know, it's our second new prime minister in, in two months. I think it's really interesting to reflect on not just Charles's whiteness, but his, his gender and male and how actually it's quite... I feel like it's quite jarring to hear God save the king. And those images of his accession um, and they were, they, were, they were playing music um, in the courtyard. And it was just, it, you could see that all the people playing the instruments were all white men. And I think it became notable in a way that it, it, it wasn't necessarily for the queen because of her kind of presence as a woman, but also as an elderly woman and kind of all of those things around caring and things that are attached to her. So I feel like there's something, I mean, I think the next couple of years are going to be interesting. I mean, I don't know how long Rishi Sunak's going to last. Maybe not that very long based on recent experience. But in terms of, yeah, race, gender, power, democracy, you know, constitution, all of those questions, I think, are almost going to come to a head because of these very significant changes. Are you seeing any narrativization of Rishi Sunak because it's a brown male body? 
as mm. somehow signifying progress because he is far, far right. Yes. Are you seeing that? You know, this is a multicultural moment. Yeah. How terrible. And this, I think, goes back to a point you and I were making earlier that how multiculturalism today and has been for a while uh, is anchored around identity politics. You know, as long as I get the identity, the politics around the identity, but not the history or the structural positioning. It's like for us here, Clarence Thomas, you know, the black man in Supreme Court. Oh, my God. You know, so I think that with Meghan Markle, there was an attempt to do that. You know, we have the black female body. But of course, identity politics never functions. If you really want a disruptive, you don't want any multiculturalism. You want a disruptive multiculturalism. But I'm going to follow how Rishi Sunak gets represented. I mean, this is very new when we're recording this. Um, so I'm sure this will become more obvious. But yeah, particularly, yeah, around multiculturalism, but also around, I mean, we can see it even when Priti Patel was running and kind of narratives around, wow, imagine a woman of colour as prime minister. And I mean, Priti Patel is despicable. Again, what's happening there is making an institution, in this case, government, in this case, a very far right government, how that's co-opting narratives of progress in order to further their agenda, I suppose, in order to kind of say, oh, well, look, you know, yeah. <laughs> look what we're doing. So it's interesting that race gets used to further racism, right? Race gets used to further racism, which is what happened initially with Meghan Markle or a colonial narrative. And it's clearly going to, uh, I mean, one can never determine politics. As Stuart Hall says, it's always without guarantees. You never know how things are going to fall at the end. But it would be reasonable to think that under Rishi Sunak, there is not going to be any racial progress, but yet he will be the brown body. But it's all about his identity and not the politics. Just like it was all about Megan as an individual woman and her belief. And I'm not, you know, we don't want to claim she, you know, she identifies as feminist. She does all this. It's not about, again, it's not about her as an individual. It's about what the institution then uses that for. Right, right. Um, and you could see particularly around the royal wedding, like how it was really obvious to me the way they were using particular narratives around her. So she'd written, pre-joining the royal family, she'd written something on period poverty that was published in a blog. And they then, on their official website, they'd then link to that as a way of saying, look at this like, you know, campaigning we're doing around period poverty. And like, how problematic is that if you're attaching an institution <laughs> to someone else's activism, but also to a very particular kind of you know, feminist po politics in order to further reproduce an institution that is inherently sexist, that is inherently racist, you know, all of those things. You know, this is really interesting, the point that you're making um, recently, and I'm making this argument in my own book. I'm writing a book on um, Hindu nationalism. My interest has always been in gender and nationalism. So I'm again looking at uh, gender and nationalism, but now through the highly Hindu fascist regime in India. Uh, but there was a recent special issue in Signs, uh, the journal Signs, that talks about how right-wing populism and dominant institutions are taking the language of feminism, female empowerment, to further populist agenda. And Sarah Ferris, I don't know if you know her work, she yes, has this one. Like mm. She talks about femonationalism, right? Uh, so I think it's interesting what one can see that possibly in the royal family, in the way in which it attempted to utilize Megan's or narrativize Megan. And then, I mean, I wonder if we could let them back to Diana. <laughs> yeah. And think about the ways that, I mean, it's not explicitly feminist, of course, in the same way, but there's certainly an, an element of, I'm thinking about the Panorama interview in particular, right? And that moment of speaking back to the institution and kind of being quite upfront about the, the struggle she'd had and how that might be, you know, co-opted in particular ways around, but around a very different narrative then at that particular moment of the kind of, you know, Tony Blair Labour movement, which is, you know, positioning itself as progressive, but really we know it was just neoliberalism. <laughs> Diana absolutely embodied that. And I think like, you know, when we are, while we are talking about how uh, Meghan Markle has been produced as a problem by the media and in the media, uh, the last days of uh, the, you know, the last few months of Diana's uh, life, uh, the media was wild about her relationship, alleged relationship with Dodi Fired, right? And of course, as someone like me, who's read every little gossip tabloid magazine about Diana, which I had <laughs> to read, she was apparently never in a relationship. She was trying to make jealous her true love, Hasnak Khan. 
And um, what was interesting is that uh, Dodi Fayed was constructed as a problem. Mm. You know, he was constructed as this irresponsible rich guy, you know, who kind of went after white models. So this stereotype of the sexually licentious Muslim man. So that was very much there. Whereas Hasnat Khan, the person Diana allegedly really loved, the Muslim doctor, uh, was given a very positive spin because he did not unsettle the national narrative. I mean, he was a doctor in a position of serving the nation, right? He never wanted to be seen. Uh, so it's interesting that whenever white femininity gets attached to a non-white body, female or otherwise, what kinds of contradictions and tensions emerge? Like Kate's narrative was not linked to Megan in the way Dinah's was to Dodi Al-Fayed, but they were linked in terms of bringing, you know, the media was trying to bring about comparisons, right? So the tensions that inform those comparisons are really interesting. We're talking about a moment when cosmopolitanism and multiculturalism <laughs> were like the topics of the day. <laughs> but then someone like you said, you know, Dodi absolutely epitomised the opposite of what they wanted in a way. So they kind of, you know, vilifying that was necessary to kind of hold on to this very particular, you know, European <laughs> version of cosmopolitanism that they wanted to push. Uh, I think that the spectre, and it is really a spectre of Diana, is, I think, for a long time is not going to go away because she has functioned as such a temporal marker, mm. right, of the non-modern, modern. Uh, but but equally important, um, and this is one of the arguments I make in my book, Diana and Beyond, uh, that due to the multiple ways in which she was narrativized, she offers so many subject positions to women, which are actually white subject positions, but like motherhood, uh, like being a caring person, uh, fashionable, right? All of, you know, wellness. She offers so many subject positions to the quote unquote modern woman. And um, I went to eBay. This might be interesting to you because you mentioned Facebook and TikTok. I went to eBay uh, because when I was doing my book, uh, I got all my media materials. I think I spent over $3,000. I got all my media materials through eBay. I did somebody it. Who did this with? Okay. <laughs> I was looking at, okay, let me go back to eBay and what's being sold about Diana. Lot being still sold, those magazines, those postcards, you know, miniature gowns. But uh, some of those magazines cost less than they do, they did when I was buying them. But they are still very much an, um, an exchange. It's almost like Diana's become an economy, you know, an economy of white femininity where people invest in white femininity because every time I am buying a doll who's wearing a Diana kind of a gown, I'm investing in a particular construct of white femininity, right? So I think it's interesting to think about Diana as an uh, economy of white femininity where people invest in certain ideas about white femininity. And in this case, of course, with eBay, that investment shows up in the financial transaction. But mm -hmm. it's not always a financial transaction. There is, for instance, I don't know if you know of this, there is a Diana Museum. It's a virtual museum. Do you know of this one? I do, yeah. yeah. And where you can buy tickets uh, for a day, for a week, for a month. You buy a ticket and then uh, it's a very slick production. And then you go into the virtual museum, you can see different Diana artifacts, her gowns, uh, et cetera. So it's fascinating. And then I'm speaking more from the American front because that's what I'm more in tune with right now. Uh, and very recently in Las Vegas, I think recently as in a few weeks back, uh, there was an entire Diana exhibition exhibiting her numerous gowns. And it was like in um, this crystal shopping parade or something like that. So we can come up with more examples, but I, I would love to think, uh, hear what you think. I think the specter of Diana will never go away. I just think it will be constantly articulated and re-articulated. I agree. And I think there's been some really interesting kind of um, investigative news articles recently around Diana and social media. 
Ah. But you mentioned you mentioned TikTok there, and there's like an there's like an unbelievable community of people who reproduce kind of old Diana clips, but also use her to think about modern monarchy. So there was a particular moment around the Queen's death, for instance, and you know perhaps it been surprisingly around Camilla, <laughs> and people kind of saying that you know Camilla shouldn't be queen because of Diana, but. You know, the users of TikTok, and I'm of course generalising here and anyone can use the media, but we might want to assume that lots of them weren't born <laughs> when, Diana was, when Diana died even. So how kind of, you know, even for that kind of, you know, much younger community, how her as a representation is, is coming back around almost and being used in lots of the same ways she was when she was alive, if it's against Camilla, but also in new ways around perhaps, I mean, you know, compared to the 90s, of course, we've spoken about, you know, whiteness and the politics of whiteness has shifted quite significantly with things like Brexit and stuff. So it's just, it was really interesting to me. And there's, there's lots of fan groups, you know, online, these kind of forums that come together around Diana. So how her as a symbol is kind of so powerful. This whole new audience who had no experience of her really when she was alive have, have started using her and identifying with her as well. And kind of using that symbol. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that this uh, really begs a larger question, which was the question, one of the questions in my book, uh, that what uh, narratives of white femininity have been so successfully, and it's never just one narrative, there are multiple narratives of white femininity, they come together, so successfully spun through Diana that universally, especially women, can identify with it. It's like the fairy tale. We all identify with the fairy tale, but in this case, what are the investments that we are making in white femininity through Diana, even the generations that were born after her? Uh, what, is, what are they being taught about white femininity through her? I think mm -hmm. that's a really interesting question. How do we learn white femininity uh, through narrativizations of Diana that are still uh, available? I think those questions are a really interesting place for us to end. Um, so thank you so much, Rebecca. This is thank really so fascinating. Much. It was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to The Global Power of the British Monarchy. Guest executively produced by Laura Clancy. You can keep up with Surviving Society on Twitter, Instagram, Apple Podcasts and Spotify.